Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. On this episode, we caught up with Sally Roberts. Sally is a three-time national champion wrestler, World Cup champion, two-time world bronze medalist, and was selected as an alternate for the 2008 Olympic Games in Beijing. Sally's a former U.S. Army Psychological Operations Specialist and veteran of the war in Afghanistan. She also wrestled for the Army's world-class athlete program and competed for Team USA. In 2016, Sally founded Wrestle Like a Girl, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to empower girls and women using the sport of wrestling to become leaders in life. I remember all of these little Afghan girls. They would be just like American girls. Dirty faces, scrubbed up knees. And they saw me and their eyes got big as saucers and they would come running up to me. I just thought, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life, but I wanna make sure that it has meaning and it has impact. And if there's a way for me to work with little girls like I was, I would love to do that. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. Thanks for listening. Sally, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm glad that Noah connected us. He's actually one of my uh, one of my older friends, both in tenure and his age. So I was glad when he put us together. Noah is such a cool cat. I, I've known him for six years. I actually met him when he needed to do a, like a little documentary video on girls wrestling, and I got to be the subject. Yeah, I guess we'll dive right into it. We're going to talk about a lot about girls wrestling this episode. Hey. So you you are a uh, you are a, a national champion wrestler, very accomplished. You've been to world wrestling championships. You were heading to the Olympics, and that came right before you joined the army. Now you run a company that's all about girls wrestling. You've been featured on TV, in print, in film. So I guess. Can we start from the beginning? When did you discover wrestling? I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and during my childhood was really challenging. Um, I, I didn't like being at home after school, so before I found wrestling, I would go out and shoplift. I broke into houses. I got into so many fights that I got arrested. I got put in front of a juvenile detention officer, and he said, you either have to find an after-school activity or, or you'll face going to juvenile detention. And I couldn't have told you what University of Washington was, Stanford, Harvard, Yale. I had no idea, but I knew juvie and I knew I didn't want to go. So I looked at the list of after-school offerings and I tried out for all the quote-unquote girls sports. So softball, basketball, volleyball, and I got cut from every single one of them. And I was being told that I was not athletic. Well, that wasn't the truth. I was actually incredibly athletic. I just didn't know how to play well with others. So when I looked at the next sport that was coming up, it was wrestling and it was a no cut sport. And I thought, oh, that's it. If I go out and wrestle and I don't quit, I won't go to juvenile detention. And that changed the trajectory of my life. Really? So it was just trial and error. You hadn't wrestled before. Did you play other sports or you were just all about getting into trouble up until then? Yeah, I was all about getting into trouble. I have two elder brothers and we, our love language was fist fighting and I can't describe it in any other way. And my mom used to always say like, you know, there's no one that's ever gonna help you in life, Sally, so you better figure it out, girl. And actually it was incredibly valuable uh, learning lesson early on. Yeah, I've read that you were the first in your family to graduate from high school as well. Yeah, yeah, so I have two older brothers and 
you know, they just went a different path in their life. So when it came to me graduating, and honestly, I barely graduated high school. I I didn't know it then, but I can look back now and say, I, I was actually racked with depression. I got told on my 16th birthday that my parents were getting a divorce and I really didn't know how to handle it. So throughout my high school career, my parents split up and I was living in my car, living out of my car. I would sleep with friends' houses and it was so transient. And I basically floated like I I'm actually a perfect case of they simply graduated me to get me out of their system. Not that I actually was even showing up or doing anything productive in high school whatsoever. Huh. So what was your next step, I guess, after high school? If you, it sounds like you didn't get good grades or you said that you weren't productive. What did you have aside from wrestling at that point? Yeah, no, I had nothing. So guess what? C's get degrees. And I somehow stumbled my way in to a college opportunity to go and wrestle at the University of Minnesota, Morris. And that was the very first school in the country that offered women's wrestling as a a sport. So I actually got offered a scholarship to go and swim as well. I was a pretty decent swimmer. But the appeal to going and wrestling at the University of Minnesota was that they were going to offer me a dorm room, and that meant that I would have a place to sleep. And that was that was like what sealed the deal. And I said, that's it. I'm going to become a wrestler, and I'm going to go to the University of Minnesota and go to school and have a dorm room. Well, Minnesota's like a, it's a big wrestling school, right? Midwest must have all the wrestling for the most part, right? Yeah, so in, in, the, in the Midwest, wrestling is huge. But when you look at the, the main campus of the University of Minnesota, there's some satellite schools. And I was at the satellite school of Minnesota Morris. So it was about an hour and a half southwest. Essentially, I was surrounded by 500,000 acres of farmland and it smelled of ethanol. How did you actually get to go up there if you were from the West Coast? When I was wrestling in high school, there was starting to become opportunities for girls. I was the only girl that wrestled throughout my high school career. I mean, we had girls that came in, but they didn't really last the whole time. And about that same time, I started to get networked in with a bunch of guys that would go after school to these tournaments. And they would like, oh, you hey, you should come to this tournament. You should come to this tournament. Well, I ended up doing well enough at those tournaments that I got I, I made it onto Team Washington, which at that time it was it still is incredibly prestigious. But I went to a national tournament and that's when I started to get ranked. So then when it came to colleges looking at athletes and what they wanted to do, I got I got a scholarship or I got an opportunity to go out there and wrestle. It wasn't a scholarship. It was like financial aid, FAFSA, something like that. I actually am still paying loans on it, but they sold it to me that I was never going to have to pay it back. Well, hopefully you got uh, you got enough out of it. Yeah, I did. So my wrestling career ended as like a freshman in high school. I just wrestled through middle school. It was uh, something to do. It was usually the case where the team had like one girl or the team that you were facing had like one girl. There wasn't actually an actual girls team. So you did you just wrestle on a boys team in high school until you got to college or was it club? Was it outside? I wrestled on the boys team. Actually, here's something wild. When I was in junior high and high school, I wrestled at 156 pounds. I was not fit. I didn't understand nutrition. I didn't understand very much, really, except for showing up to practice and just rumbling. And so I wrestled boys. I wrestled boys at 156 pounds. And if you're looking at the physiological makeup of a high school girl that's 156 pounds and a high school boy, I was totally getting my ass kicked. But I loved it because at home we would fight and that would be our love language. Really? So did you start whooping your brother's asses after you started wrestling seriously? 
You know, I think what happened is that we just came to a truce. Like my my oldest brother moved out of the house. My the brother that was just that's just a little bit older than me. He was around, but he, we just had such different lives that it just didn't make any sense. So I think he would get really into like judo and taekwondo and like the karate stuff, and I just really wanted to fight. Have you branched out into uh, like MMA or or? Things other than wrestling. I know that that's your expertise, uh, but how much have you tried other stuff? So this is a great question. The answer is nothing, zero, nada, and I'll tell you why. I've had so many surgeries from my wrestling career that all I have left is my face, and if this gets jacked up, I've got nothing else to salvage. (laughs) Uh, That's perfect. So how did it go at Minnesota Morris? Can you take us through that? It was hard. It was hard because I came from a structure that had no structure. I came from a place that had no structure. I was living out of my car. I was doing whatever I wanted to do. Suddenly, I thought I was living this grand life, and I was, but it was like I had to go to school, and I had to actually study, and I didn't, under, my, I didn't understand how my brain worked. Now I can say I have ADHD, and it was, it was not easy. I was just used to being a bit of a renegade, and... I suddenly had to show up to practice on time and I had to be in the right uniform and I had to have my home. It was very hard for me. It was like a near out of body experience. So I think I ended up, I went to school there for two years and what I got out of those two years truly were incredible friendships. What I did not get, I can't tell you a course that I took. I couldn't tell you a professor that I liked. I can tell you that what I am most infamously known for was that we had this huge four mile loop around complex and i i can say it now but i didn't know then i have horrific adhd and the idea of even running four miles in a in a linear line or around a block it 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 was so hard for me and i was such a hooligan so this is how i became notorious on campus i Um, started mooning everyone and I took off in a sprint and I made sure that I stayed in the front of the pack so that this whole entire time they saw my butt cheeks and they would look at me and say oh my gosh I would have never gotten in trouble but the dean of the university was actually out driving and saw me and turned me into my wrestling coach and I ended up getting in trouble for that so then even then my wrestling coach started to rein in my antics because I was truly just this wild child so for someone with ADD, you chose a sport with three two-minute rounds. Exactly. I am, I am the world's best sprinter. Perfect. How big was the – you said that this was one of the first schools to have a women's program. How many other schools were you competing against? Where did you find competition? Mostly Canada. We had to take – well, and we didn't have funding, right? So we would get these – 15 passenger vans and we would drive from the University of Minnesota, which was in Morris, and we would go up to Regina or we would go places in Canada, Montreal, and we would compete because in Canada, women's wrestling was smaller, but it was growing big and it was really prevalent in the university systems. So we would go up to Canada and wrestle. And then we would drive back down. Occasionally the Canadians would come to the US, but it made more sense for us to go up there. At what point did you, I guess, start realizing that you were getting really good at wrestling when did it start to make sense that you you know you had that elevated ability and what's it and what does it come from like what makes you so good at wrestling in 2001 i had just had my limit of being at 
the University of Minnesota Morris, mostly for a lot of cultural reasons, because I came from Seattle and I, I couldn't adjust to like small town living life. And one of my high school friends that I used to wrestle on this circuit with, which is how I got into Team Washington, he got recruited to go and wrestle at Pacific University in Forest Grove, Oregon. So I made the decision to go to Forest Grove and go wrestle at Pacific, where what I didn't do well at was study. I had a 1.09 GPA after one year, but they did recruit this wrestling coach. His name was Madi, and he came from Iran. And in Iran, wrestling, freestyle wrestling, Greco-Roman wrestling, the Olympic styles are huge. And this was really like one of the first coaches that taught us one good technique, <laughs> and that's what I had. So at about 2002, I was wrestling at Pacific University. We had this Iranian coach that was really invested. He was the women's coach teaching us this Olympic style. And at that same time, the Olympic movement said that women's wrestling was gonna be in the 2004 Olympics. So because of that, they opened up the Olympic Training Center and they were starting to recruit athletes. Well, I actually wasn't doing all that great competitively, and I wasn't doing great academically whatsoever. However, I've never lacked confidence, even when I probably should have. So there was a there was a tournament that I was at and the national team coach, Terry Steiner, was walking around and I walked up to him and I said, if you give me an opportunity to wrestle at the United States Olympic Training Center as part of the resident program, I promise you, I will make you so proud. And he looked at me and said, call me next week. So I went home, I went back to the university, I called him and he said, all right, you've got six months to prove yourself. If you can show me after six months that you deserve to be here, I'll keep you. So I had th me and three other teammates, we loaded up into the back of this Toyota truck that my mom got us at, I don't know, it was such a beater. Uh, we even had like this fake, like one of those bags that go on it, but it was too big. It hung over the back and we put all of our sleeping bags in it and everything. And we drove from, we drove from basically Portland to Colorado Springs. There was a two seater Toyota truck. So two people were in the front and then there was always two people in the back. We had to rotate out and we rolled into the training center. And I remember I was like, this is where my life will make sense. And <clears throat> So then I was at the Olympic Training Center, and that was when I didn't have to study, I didn't have to do anything but wrestle. I had a phenomenal coach that came from the University of Iowa. He was an NCAA champ, and he just, you know what he did? He gave me positive reinforcement. He gave me positive praise, and that just fired me up. And he'd be like, Sally, I think you can fight harder. And I was like, I think so too. <laughs> was, was that something that you... It sounds like that might have been something new for you, this like coaching engagement, positive praise. Did you just find the person who was best at coaching you, had the, who you had the best chemistry with? I got lucky. I For real, I got lucky. Because now that I know my personality and the way that my brain works, it was serendipitous. So when Terry Steiner got hired by Team USA to be the women's national team coach, they went through a, a hiring pool and they found a... They selected him and it was what was really interesting about it is that when he got the job, it was something along the lines of, 
uh, you know, you're an NCAA champion. You could do so many things. We're going to offer you to be the women's national team coach. Um, we would be really grateful if you could at least keep it for a year. And so they were like prepping him that it was going to be a, a terrible job. And he was like, I'm married. I have a daughter. I like I like girls and women. I'm totally cool with taking this job. So he came in and he has a very soft and gentle and patient personality. He's me, 180 degrees the opposite. He's such an introvert, he hardly talks. And so what he did was he was able to put together positive coaching and he tied it with actual legitimate technique. Like you don't win an NCAA national champion at the University of Iowa by a fluke. Like you actually have to earn it. And so that's what he did. Like he actually, for the first time ever, you had one man that was willing to dedicate his time and effort and energies into teaching this ragtag bunch of girls that came from all over the United States with these Olympic hopes and dreams and said, I'm going to give you what you need to succeed. And it's up to you to take advantage of it. And that was when I started to really unlock and unleash this potential inside of me that was like, oh, I am capable of doing some pretty amazing things as long as I surround myself by the right people, as long as I make good choices, as long as I understand the mental framing that I need to have. So. I came into the training center and I was about 160 pounds. I was not fit. And I dove into a nutrition. I dove into nutrition. I had a nutritionist that would write out my meal plan. I would go and do blood tests and I would get all of my hormones tested to make sure that when I'm eating and I was manipulating my diet, that I was making sure to like stay as strong and healthy as possible. I had a strength and conditioning coach who's now actually um out at coronado he's a trainer for the navy seals so like we got surrounded by people that true like we had to win olympic gold medals like that's where the funding came from they didn't care if you went to school they didn't care if you even ever left your room they didn't care if you studied nothing are you gonna win if so why are you gonna win and tell me how that's true and show it to me every day in practice and it was like my mind body and spirit had been set free you also, later on, you got your master's in sports psychology. So it sounds like you have a lot to reflect on. And did that, did like that period have an influence on getting you to that point? I don't want to skip around time, but it seems uh, we could talk about that. Well, I would say, so there's really like two segments of my wrestling career, right? We had from like 2002 until 2008. And that was when I was just so incredibly devoted to the sport and to the craft and to honing it in every sense of the word. This was even before I went and got my master's. And I had to learn how to eat and how to, how to understand nutrition and journaling. I mean, what makes like my gift of all gifts are two things. I'm a fanatic and I have a work ethic like you can't believe. And so I really just dug in. I, I won most of my matches because it was a dog fight that went into overtime. Like for real, I knew that if I could get my opponent to the third round, I would win because I would definitely exhaust them. And then I just turn it into like a street brawl, which was really cool. If you were wrestling anyone from the like, Eastern Europe, Russia, Belarus, Azerbaijan, like all of those girls and women, they are so gritty and they are so tough. Like we flew to tournaments in Kresnyarsk, Russia. It was negative 40 degrees. Like the world is against you. They don't want you to win. And the, the athletes that would win those tournaments, 
it, it was because you learned how to fight. And so uh, there's this really prestigious tournament that's in Krasnyarsk, Russia. So you fly into St. Petersburg, you take a plane another eight hours east, you land in Krasnyarsk, it's negative 40 degrees out. It's completely terrible conditions. Like they give you these, uh, like when you land these little entrees that you're supposed to eat. And I thought it was jello, but it turns out it was fat cubes that just like melt in your mouth. And like that's that's sort of how it goes right like wrestling doesn't give you these opportunities like tennis or beach volleyball and so there was this incredible tournament i ended up winning it twice and i didn't just win it but when you win this tournament they give you a stack of cash it's twelve thousand dollars cash and i was like what are you supposed to do with this i hand it to my wrestling coach terry and i'm like you better carry this back i'm definitely getting mugged just like in, like in bands, like uh, like rubber banded cash or what? Yeah, yeah, it was. I looked at this and I was like, I've got one idea where this money came from, and I don't want it. I like dropped it like it was hot, and my coach was like, I've got it. I'll carry it home for you. So you talked about two phases. So O two to O eight. What was the second phase, and how did it differ? So in two thousand eight. I was going into the Olympic year training for Beijing and there was a lot of challenges in the wrestling room. We brought in an outside coach or we brought in, Terry was the head coach. We brought in a different developmental coach who came from Russia and there was just a different mentality of how you go about making an Olympic team in Russia. So the American way is to the victor goes the spoils, like to the best athlete, like whoever wins this tournament, you will become the Olympian. And in Russia and some of those Eastern Bloc countries, it's whoever the coach selects, right? So there, what, what happened in the wrestling room in 2008 was that there was this division that started to get created by the coach that selected the athletes they wanted to win. And then there was like the American way that I was used to. So that caused a lot of challenges. And I ended up getting all the way to the finals for the Olympic trials and I took second. And in the sport of wrestling, only the number one person goes. And I came home, I was married at the time. I came home, I got so depressed that I didn't make the Olympic team. I, I mean, I literally looked in the mirror like I was a big fat loser. I couldn't reconcile that I had worked so hard and I had gone against all of these odds and I wasn't successful. Like it made no sense to me. And because of my depression, you know, the guy that I was married to just, he, we ended up getting a divorce. I mean, he said, you know, you didn't live up to your potential. And that crushed me again, like to a new level of depression. And it was to the point that- How, I, many, how many Olympic medals did he have? He had, he had zero, he had zero for sure. So I, I somehow knew intrinsically in my head that if I didn't change my physical space, my mental space would never change. So I somehow managed to stumble into the army recruiter's office and said, give me the toughest job any woman can have off the street. And he was like, I've got a few jobs for you. <laughs> and so it really came down between civil affairs and psychological operations. And I was like, why are these better than the other jobs? And he was like, because they're uh, in the soft community. I didn't know what soft was. I was like, do I have to train to get in? He was like, yes, you do. And it's incredibly hard. And I was like, which one's harder? He was like, I don't know, but this one starts first. And it was PSYOP. And I was like, well, I guess I'm going to become PSYOP, whatever that is. <laughs> 
So that's actually how I joined the military. So I went to the Beijing Olympics. I was the alternate, sat in the cheap seats, backpacked around China for a month, drank too much yingling, and then came home, decided that um, I, I had to change my life. Like I couldn't just hang out and be this depressed person, join the military. And like that was sort of what segmented my first wrestling career and my second wrestling career was this incredible experience being in the military and deploying to Afghanistan. Wow. So before you get into the military, like I've never been in, uh, headed to the Olympics for anything. I'm still holding out for curling, which I think that joke gets overused so much. But maybe when I'm 50, there is this second place depression, right? Like people who win bronze are happier than people who win silver, right? Yeah, because for sure. you got a medal. You didn't. You didn't not get the gold medal. Yeah, for sure. I got a bronze. I got two world bronze medals. So 2003, I competed at the World Championships in Madison Square Garden, and 2005, I competed at the World Championships in Budapest, Hungary. And in 2003, straight up in the semifinals, I beat myself for sure. I 100. percent And the girl that ended up I lost to ended up going on and getting completely smoked by um, the girl that ended up winning it, and. I was happy that I won a bronze medal. I was like euphoric. And actually that was a pretty historic uh, world championships for Team USA because that was the first world championships where we had all of the girls that got residency at the Olympic Training Center. We all competed at the world championships in New York City and we all medaled. So that was really cool. In 2005, I, I went to the world championships again, representing Team USA. And this was the first time I've ever seen corruption in, in sport affect me, where the referee blatantly was giving my opponent points. And I didn't know what to do. Like, I, I didn't know who to fight. I was like, am I supposed to wrestle her? Am I supposed to fight you? Like, I don't understand. And so then that one, I did not feel good winning a bronze medal because I knew I got cheated. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. It was just... Sometimes in the sport of wrestling, I mean, since then, the sport has been cleaned up with corruption. But at that point in time, like it was tough. And that bronze medal, that one stung. And I ha still have it hanging on my wall behind me when I get on Zoom calls, but I'm not proud of it. But you also won uh, a few golds for the U.S. Nationals, too. Yeah, yeah. Was that always a qualifier for the Worlds? Yeah, it is. So in order to make... The way that it goes is that you have to win the national title, then you have to go on and win the world team trials, and then whoever wins world team trials, then you go on to represent Team USA. So it's it's really competitive. So I actually, I don't even know how many times I've won nationals because it's really a stepping stone to get to the world stage. And depending on how you view sports and, and what your accomplishments you want, like some people, nationals is huge. And for other people, you're like, uh, it's just a tournament I have to go participate in in order for me to get to the world championships where I really want to rock. So you're freestyle, right? Like, is that exclusive? I know there's a few different types of wrestling. Yeah, freestyle. So that means you can touch um, your opponent and you can move your body and touch anywhere from your head all the way down to your feet. And you expose your opponent's back by like getting their back to turn and tilt past 90 degrees. So it's a really, you know, it's 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 considered a martial art. And with that, like there's just a lot of moves that you can do that are really beautiful and is really fluid. Unlike the folk style that they wrestle at the men in the United States Wrestling College, where it's just, it can be really spectacular if you're a fantastic, phenomenal wrestler, but otherwise it can look pretty blocky and it doesn't have the same fluidity. And what do they compete at in the Olympics? They do freestyle and Greco-Roman? 
Yeah, they do freestyle and Greco-Roman. So men and women both do freestyle and men only do Greco-Roman. So we're going to go off on a little bit of a tangent. So you ring, rein me back in when you want. So because of that, I, I there's there's not equality, right? Like women can wrestle freestyle and men can wrestle freestyle and Greco-Roman. So then the thought process for most would be, well, maybe the women should wrestle Greco-Roman too. No. Like our former international federation, they would say, mm, these are not so strong. And they would put their hands up to the ears. And we would be like, women's ears aren't as strong. Huh. So it didn't ever make sense to us. But then wrestling got kicked out of the Olympics for a lot of different reasons, which we could totally go into later. And when it got brought back, they said, okay, well, you need to start looking at how you're going to find an accompaniment for women's freestyle so that we could have gender equality within the sport because this is about medal counts now and there's global eyes on us. And they were like, but the women, they can't do Greco. So they're trying to get us to wrestle beach wrestling in, in like two pieces. <laughs> What? Yeah, yeah, listen. Listen, they're taking it from beach volleyball, and it, it's not necessarily two pieces. Like, you can decide what it is that you want to wear. But, yeah, they're trying, like, they're making beach wrestling a thing. And at first, I was totally against it. But I'll tell you what, it was because I came from living in the United States. When I look at the different styles and the way that people wrestle, Greco-Roman, like, that's... Russia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, all of those countries, they're phenomenal at Greco. You know who's kicking ass at beach wrestling right now? The African countries, the Bahamas, Latin America. And you're like, oh, of course they would wrestle on the beach. And so now I've actually become a fan of the beach wrestling because I think it brings in a different voice, a different perspective, and a different uh, type of people that we otherwise wouldn't see on this global stage. Strategically with the sport itself is the thing that it's like your base is not as steady if you're in sand, right? Like you can't base off a solid mat and you have to use different techniques. Oh yeah. Go the, is the scoring the same? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's some differences that you have with it. I mean, the biggest thing is that it's a, a really affordable sport when it's in the sand. But like, I would say the biggest challenge I had was that 30 seconds into wrestling your opponent, your calves start to burn so much because you don't realize how much forward and backward and how much you rely on your calf muscles to keep your balance, especially in the sand. So you're jockeying for position and trying to get leverage on your opponent so you can throw them and expose them and get them to land on their back in the sand inside of this circle. And it's a whole lot of fun, but holy smokes, like when I would get done, my forearms would be burning and my calves would be burning like I've never experienced. Jeez. Ben and I are going to try this out. Maybe next weekend we'll go out to Long Island or something, Ben. That's the place. I heard, <laughs> listen, <never> Strong <laughs> Island. It's Strong Island. All right. All right. Uh, we'll crash uh, a volleyball, beach volleyball park scene and uh, start wrestling in the middle of it. We'll see how that goes, Matt. Well, we had, a top, we had a Top Gun guy on recently, uh, Jim. So, you know, we go from beach volleyball to uh, beach wrestling. Yeah. Jeans and dog tags. All right, now we're getting off on a tangent. Hey, everybody. This is the point in the podcast where we talk about some great nonprofits, and we've got a couple new ones for you. We'll talk about the obvious one first. We spent a good bit of time talking to Sally herself about her nonprofit organization, Wrestle Like a Girl. We wanted to take an extra second just to point out that you can visit them at wrestlelikeagirl.org to find out even more and to donate to their cause. 
In addition to speaking with Sally, it was inspiring for us to watch some of the videos about how they're advancing their sport while making such a positive impact in young women's lives. Great stuff. That's WrestleLikeAGirl.org. I also want to take a second to tell you about an organization called Elite Meet. Elite Meet supports members of the military special operations communities as they transition from service by connecting them with business leaders. A network-centric organization, Elite Meet promotes the extraordinary value and leadership experience of its elite transitioning veterans to premier organizations through a series of conferences, events, and its digital community. The organization provides opportunities for vets to meet with corporate partners and learn about a variety of industries while interacting with a community of peers with a shared experience. Elite Meet provides access to an unmatched talent pool and works with corporate partners willing to recognize the unique values Elite veterans bring to a team. Since its inception in 2017, Elite Meet has been a resource for over a thousand transitioning special operations veterans and has hosted more than 25 events with over 300 corporate supporters. If you're a special operator transitioning careers, a business leader looking for elite talent, or a potential supporter who wants to enable their organization to grow, visit EliteMeetUS.org to find out more. That's EliteMeetUS.org. Thanks, and let's get back to the show. So let's talk about the Army. So you went in the recruiter's office. You were like, give me the toughest thing. I don't care what it is. I'll do it. Tell us about that. Tell us about coming back from the Olympics and then you go right into basic training and job training after that. There's there's like, I think a three month break. And I remember going to MEPS and I had to go to a hotel in Denver and I called. Oh, and by the way, I told no one in my family, like they thought I was going to make another run at the Olympics. So they're expecting a phone call to be like, guess what? I'm back. Well, my phone call was a little <laughs> bit different. And I was like, guys, I'm going to save myself. And they're like, great. What are you doing? And I said, I've joined the army. And there was an audible gasp, like, ah! and they couldn't believe it. And they're like, you've never said you wanted to be in the army. You never expressed an interest. And I was like, desperate times take desperate measures as I'm like eating beef jerky and like trying to drown my sorrow. And in the meantime, I don't know what I'm expecting, right? They told me that I was gonna be going through a selection. They told me all of this stuff. I'm worried that I'm a big fat loser, number two in the US. I don't know if I'm fit enough. I don't know if I'm good enough. I am totally stressing out about this. So then I go through maps and I go through basic training and basic training. Listen, the hardest part for me was to like not get in trouble by either making and also I was 30. So that was a total game changer. If you go in when you're older, because yeah, yeah, I was just looking around and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting place to people watch. And I would be quiet, but then heaven forbid, I like my natural personality came out and I was too funny. I'd be like doing pushups for no reason. And I had to learn to make it look like I was struggling at pushups. Otherwise I was like doing a hundred of them. And so after like five, he'd be like, I don't know. Ah! <laughs> and so I, you know, I, I had basic training was an interesting thing. I didn't tell anybody that I was an athlete. I didn't want anyone to know because then the next thing you know, they're going to start asking me all these questions. And I was like, how am I going to respond with tears? Like I'm a big loser. So I clearly haven't come to terms with being second in the nation yet. 
So then I go right from basic training to AIT and I actually start to ask them like, Hey, um, are we going to work out more? <laughs> like I'm starting to gain weight. I, I thought we were, I thought this was going to be like a slog fest, right? And they're, I, they say to me, and I kid you not, what do you think you're training for seal team six? And I was like, what is seal team six? Is that something I need to be training for? So anyway, so I go through basic AIT and we have to go through all these tests and courses and everything. And I'm just, the biggest problem I have, no kidding, is my ADHD. Like at one point I I put my gun down and I forgot it somewhere. And I was like, oh no, I think I get in trouble for that. So I go back and pick it up and I bring it back with me. No one catches me, no one gets me in trouble. But then this is where I like have to start doing my own personal reining in and saying, okay, like you have to start having a piece of paper with everything that you're accountable for. And you have to start like knowing where you're supposed to be and like carrying yourself appropriately. And I couldn't be a wild child anymore. And I like made myself like really start to adhere to the military discipline. And it was incredibly helpful in my life. So then I went from that to there was an opportunity to deploy pretty much right out of the gates. And it it was with I so I went to a reserve unit because I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life. And my reserve unit, they were like all all the guys were like, hey, we're getting there's a deployment. We want to try and get on it. And I was like, they definitely need a woman like this is my calling. So I go to the first sergeant and I'm like. I really need to, there's this deployment. I definitely need to go. And he was like, um, I don't want you to kill anybody. So I, I'm just going to hold your name back. And I was so mad. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I was going to do, but I knew that like I was unbridled energy that could just unleash something amazing on this world. Yeah, no, he said no. So then there was a second deployment that was coming up out of Oregon and I learned how to make things happen in the army. I did not ask my first sergeant. I somehow managed to use my Google and find the phone number of this commander who happened to be a a pretty cool lady. And I called her up and said, you've never met me, but I promise you, if you put me on my, your team, you're not going to regret it. I'm going to make you incredibly proud. She was like, well, you're the only person that's ever called me to ask to come on a deployment. So you're in. And so then I went to Clackamas, Oregon and I did this train up that was really preparing me for my deployment. And it was, you know what, I'll tell you what the, the hardest part that I had was, I think I had a different expectation of the workout requirement. Like this is gonna be a common theme. We had to do a ruck march before we could deploy. And they were like, the women need to put 45 pounds in their bag and the men are putting 50 and you're gonna chew tobacco too. And I was like, what? And so I made them put weight in my bag and I was like, give me some tobacco. I came in second and I was like spitting tobacco on their feet. I mean, I had a great time. I had a great time. I loved it. Did they know what they were in for? They had no idea. By the way, when you showed up for the pre-mission training? No idea. And by the way, no one still knew that I was an athlete. Like, I mean, they thought I just lifted weights and I was a big meathead. So you go on this deployment to Afghanistan. Yeah. Was it a was it a psyop mission? Yeah. Yeah. So we like we were in Bagram. We were on a compound. There was a lot of pe- there was a lot of people on the outside that wanted to know what was inside the compound, and I was always trying to leave the compound. So I had a few different jobs. So by this time, I had my undergraduate degree, and I went in as an E four because I was clearly running from emotions. So then when I deployed, they gave me this E7 job and I was like, great. 
And I loved it because suddenly like I was able to turn my brain on and I could focus and it was, it was a really great experience in that way. And I got to learn about logistics and mailing. I don't know. For some reason it was very cool to me. I was mailing packages. And then one day I was like, this is boring. Why am I sitting here? And so I go to the commander and I'm like, you know, I just feel like I'm wasted talent. I'm wasted talent. And she was like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I want to go outside the wire. <laughs> so I got an opportunity to go out and do some of the missions with some of the other SF or sorry, special operations groups. And that was life affirming. And that actually like started to set the the stage of my the next evolution of where I was going to go with my life. I didn't know it at the time, but it was really impactful. For this trip, I was with the Pathfinders and we were out walking and they were like, all right. And I had an interpreter and I, I remember all of these little Afghan girls, like they would be just like American girls, dirty faces, scrubbed up knees from falling. They were playing stickball, whatever they were doing. And they saw me and they saw me walking and their eyes got big as saucers and they would come running up to me and they would take their thumbs and like touch their thumb to my thumb. And I was, I just thought, I don't know what I'm gonna do with my life, but I wanna make sure that it has meaning and it has impact. And if there's a way for me to work with like little girls like I was, I would love to do that. And so that started yeah. to set the stage of like, there was, a, there was something else that I could do with my life. And I wasn't quite sure what that was, but then actually, so here is just a testament to my personality. I probably should have got articled for this, but there was one time I had to go and go with this Lieutenant Colonel and he had to go to this fob in the middle of nowhere. And I had been tasked now, I had many a tasks to writing this white paper on the effectiveness of female engagement teams. And I was like, okay. So I had a background in research and, and writing and doing white papers. So the, the reason that I actually went on this trip with this Lieutenant Colonel was because there was supposed to be some women that I was gonna interview and start to get some data and analytics for. Well, we go to a fob and then we have to go to like this small outpost. And he's like, hey, we're gonna go and we're gonna meet my friend. There's like a Polish special forces group. We load up into the back of these vehicles and I'm in one vehicle, he's in another. I don't know what he says or does, but he offends them. They open up the back of this truck in the middle, like this vehicle, I don't know what it's called, and it drops down and you're supposed to just walk right out. I walk out and I see him. They're trying to take off. Like he's made them so mad, he want, they wanna leave him. And I'm like, whoa do they think they're gonna leave me in the middle of the night in Afghanistan with you? I was like, fuck no. So I take, I go walking, I get to the back of the vehicle and I'm like, bah, 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 let me in. The thing comes back down, I go up there and I'm like, take me to the fob that I need to go to. And they were like, okay. So then they begrudgingly also let this Lieutenant Colonel come in with us. And they don't want to talk to him. Like their body language is mad. In the meantime, I'm like trying to give them Twizzlers and like make a peace offering. They drop us off outside of this like little outpost in the middle of the night so that we can go and meet up with this Lieutenant Colonel's friend. He's not there. 
made no coordinations whatsoever. So now it's me on this super small outpost with this guy that doesn't know how to get along with anybody. I don't know what his problem is. And there's two different groups there and I don't actually know who they are, but I remember like being nervous for the first time. Like I kind of know how to use a gun. I mean, I haven't had to use one yet, but if I have to, it's going down tonight. And I just remember like being so uncomfortable. And then that's when I was like, okay, listen, I don't, you're in the military, Sally, and you definitely have to follow orders. But if they're not competent, you have to use your voice and stick up for yourself. Cause I would have got killed out there and I know it. And no one would have known where I was at. And I'd have been like, what would they have told my mom? She tried really hard. Jesus. So, I almost feel like we could just keep asking you for stories like this. But to be a little more resolute in my goals as an interviewer, I have to ask, up until, so that story's hilarious, but when you start seeing little Afghan girls playing yeah. and connecting with them, talking to them, greeting them, up until this point, how much had you seen yourself as a leader among women and girls? Even even though, you know, you're an elite wrestler, you're an elite female athlete, how, how did that part of your persona develop? That was a pivotal point for my development as how I started to reframe my own narrative. Because up until that point, being an athlete, what do I need to win? What is it going to make to make me successful? What do I need to eat? How much does my body weigh? I mean, I was incredibly good at making sure all of my needs were met and I could just ignore life around me. Like things could be on fire and I'd be like, it's all right, I'm on weight. And that was one of the first times that I, I was walking and I, and I just, I recognized that the way that I spoke and the way that I carried my frame, that, whether I knew it or not, was sending this signal to little girls who I will never know their names, that they could be like me. And not necessarily like an athlete, because they didn't know that, but someone that could think for themselves and could handle themselves and, and be a, a citizen of the world. And that's when I said, okay, I need to start leveling up my game of what it is that I do and how I talk and how I start to really go towards life. Like there's a better way to do it where it's not, it doesn't have to be a zero sum game. It's not you win, you lose. Like there is common ground that you can find with so many people if you're willing to look for it. I know you work with children now. Did you have a lot of experience working with kids just through the sport or did you have any mentorship opportunities, anything like that until this point? I didn't really know. I mean, when I was deployed, I got to interact with a, a general officer and he said, well, you're carrying yourself differently. You talk a little bit differently. If I need to be professional, I can definitely turn on the heat. And he said, what did you do before this? And I said, well, I, I wrestled. And he said, oh, do you want to go back and wrestle? Well, I didn't know what he meant. And he said, well, there's an army program called WCAP, the World Class Athlete Program. If you want, I will write a letter of recommendation so you can go back and continue wrestling for the army representing Team USA. And I was like, yeah, I have some unfinished business. So then that like clicked something in my brain that set off this new thing that I was doing 
when I was deployed, I, I came up with this thousand mile challenge. I had about two and a half months left and I wanted to run a thousand miles. So I would get on the treadmill and I became Forrest Gump. I would like take breaks from work and I would go run or I would come back from missions and I would go run. So I started like quasi training again, like mentally thinking that I was Rocky Balboa. And when I redeployed and I came back to the US and I got to interact and engage with civilians that didn't have that deployment experience and they didn't see the level of poverty and they didn't see the way that boys were treated and they didn't see the two levels down that girls were treated. I thought, okay, someone has to be a voice for these girls. And I realized that I didn't necessarily have to travel outside of the United States to be able to interact and engage with with girls and women that that needed a voice. So one day I was sitting in the sauna um, for WCAP because I, I did go back and start wrestling. And I thought, I know what it is that I want to do for my next juncture. When I want to retire from elite athletics, when I'm ready to transition out of the military, I'm going to start an organization that gives voice and representation to girls and women in the sport of wrestling. And that's sort of how it came about. Like, I just, I, I knew that if I decided I wanted to do it, I would just rock it out and I, I made the decision. Yeah, so you founded Wrestle Like a Girl in 2016, right? Yeah, I founded it in the WCAP sauna on Fort Carson thinking, I'm gonna just start a very small organization and help one or two girls. So how do you actually start out? Like what? So your mission is to help girls through the sport of wrestling. Technically, what does that mean? Are you training girls? Are you hosting tournaments? What did you start out with doing and how has that grown? The initial concept was that we were gonna go around and do wrestling clinics, hire all of my friends that were these national team athletes, world and Olympic champions that were chronically unemployed chronically underpaid and we were going to hire them and we we're going to go do camps and clinics and it was going to be amazing. It took me two of our clinics. The girls would come and they would say, this is really great, Sally, but now what? And I would say, what do you mean? But now what? Now you can go wrestle at school. And they would say, yeah, but I'm from at that time, I'm from Kansas and Kansas doesn't let girls wrestle. What do you mean? They don't let girls wrestle. Anyone can wrestle. There's a law. It's called title nine. And they're like, but that doesn't apply to me. And so then that's when I realized like, well, of course they're gonna not think that that law applies to them. They're like 12 years old, right? So it, it became very clear to me that it's one thing to offer programming, but if we don't actually change the policies and we change some of the culture that's in the sport, we're never gonna be able to reduce those barriers to entry and open up increased opportunities and access for girls. And so I worked with my team and said, okay guys, what we started out to do was camps and clinics. That's really cool, but we're not actually helping make change. We need to start re-examining how we can dive into policy. And so now we do high school wrestling initiatives. We work with the states at the state executive level or the executive associations to sanction or approve girls high school wrestling as an official sport. We worked with the NCAA to get them to approve women's wrestling as an NCAA emerging sport. And that's an incredibly pivotal thing that is going to be very transformative for the sport of wrestling for a few different reasons. And then we do 
advocacy and we do research. And so we've just dived into like this million dollar organization where we're just knocking it out of the park so that we can create these opportunities for girls. Because one of the things that I so strongly believe is it is such a ridiculous ask to ask athletes or the kids that are growing up to be their own change makers. Like we need the adults to come in and do that for them and to give them those pockets of air and breathing room so that they can just enjoy the experience and and find the hardship and the joys and the, the ups and downs of life. Like they shouldn't be having to write policy and go talk to their congressmen and senators. I actually agree, but I had never thought of that point before. So I like, I like how you put that. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm just going to dive in. Wait, you're the you're the host. Listen, I'm going to give you the reins. No, dive in by all means. Okay. so when it came to the NCAA, like this is I I don't even think people saw the vision, but they're going to start to see it now and they're going to know it after we're on this podcast. As I was sharing earlier, men at the collegiate level, they wrestle folk style, which is a very distinct. I'm going to call it a traditional style for the United States. And we do have an Olympics, but they don't wrestle folk style in the Olympics. You only wrestle in college for the men at like folk style. So when we were putting this proposal forward to the NCAA, it was on in some ways a bit of a dogfight, but I made it so that the style was going to be freestyle. And that meant it was going to be the Olympic style. And the significance of that was that any girl in the world that wrestled freestyle from any country, if she got accepted to come to the United States, she got approved to go to college, she could afford the funding, she can come here and wrestle, represent her school, whether it's Sacred Heart or Presbyterian, and still go back to her home nation as an educated woman that can still go to the Olympics, represent her country, and she is now going to be part of that change that sets the precedent going forward of what girls and women are expected to do. And we are now creating leaders that can take seats at the table where they have never had that opportunity before, especially in the sport of wrestling that is so male centric, very traditional and really like blocked opportunities in the past. Do you consider yourself a global organization then? We do. We do. So we consider ourselves so like a girl. We are the global advocacy organization for girls and women in the sport of wrestling. We sit at the intersection of wrestling, gender equality and human rights. And you find that you can use wrestling as a vehicle to get after those other issues? Yes. Wrestling, sport diplomacy. I'll tell you what, like there has just been been this perfect storm of experiences, right? Like growing up as the only girl that wrestled on the boys high school team and in these spaces. I mean, I learned how to conduct myself in these very type A male dominant spaces and I could keep my bearing. I could keep my humor. I could I was able to like ebb and flow really well and being able to then go and create those spaces for other girls and women. I mean, that was really cool. But being able to take that to the global stage, creating that global structure is what's making swift changes that are happening in our sport because of wrestling, because of sport diplomacy. You know, we got to go to Brazil and work in some of the favelas where we get to go and talk to these girls and women that have been marginalized, working with survivors of sexualized violence of war and helping them rehabilitate through wrestling and sports so they can find their their center mass and, and 
where do their feet belong on the ground? And you have to do that physiological recovery for the mental and psychosocial recovery. So the work that we do, I mean, yeah, we do wrestling camps and policy change, but we also, and this is the work that I love to do, we go to the gnarliest places and work with marginalized women and girls that have been victims of human trafficking, sexualized violence from war, abuse, acid attacks, and we go and we give them a sport where it doesn't matter what you look like, how much you weigh, what your religion, your ethnicity is, as long as you can fight, we'll work with you. And what I think to be so cool is that we also do self-defense courses and more times than not, women and girls do not know where their voice is. So for instance, we were doing this self-defense course at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and we had to get the girls to scream, stop, get away from me, I don't know you. The girls were from nine to 16 years old. It took us about 45 minutes for them to scream loud enough so that we could hear them. And then we had one of our wrestler friends come in and grab one of these girls. And his job was to walk out with her. And she had to scream, stop, get away from me, I don't know you. And she couldn't. Like, she panicked and she lost her voice. And so from that, we've just learned, like, man, we have to encourage our girls and our women's to scream and to shout and to be bossy and to be opinionated and to be able to scream, stop, get away from me. I don't know you. How many countries have you been to so far, aside from the Army, but working with your uh, with your organization? We've been to five so far. And again, like... Outside of Australia, Australia was a sweet trip, but outside of Australia, they've all been fairly gritty and we have, we've got some pretty cool stuff that's coming up. So we're going to be working with Great Britain and Canada, and we have been working with a couple countries in the Middle East. So the Middle East is a really Mm. interesting topic as well. Within the Middle East, there is, for the most part, there's no wrestling really much less women's wrestling and like, so there's the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, they have an agenda 2030, where they wanna have 50-50 equal participation by 2030. That's awesome for many sports that already have gender parity or even equality. Wrestling doesn't have that. And in the Middle East, girls are not wrestling. So we've been going out and, and helping to stand up They're called national governing bodies. So basically setting up all of the infrastructure so that girls and women can get involved in the sport and they can start to participate through their lifespan. Yeah, I mean, when you talk about girls playing sports in the Middle East, you're talking about so much more than sports, right? Yeah. With, I mean, just the restrictions that are placed on them culturally, legally. How do you go from having, like you described Afghanistan, you said that girls were two or three levels beneath boys culturally. How do you make those steps, several steps in one, just by going and introducing a sport? What's phenomenal is that when you look at sport and what sport can teach you, everyone knows it's more than sport, right? Like wrestling, it teaches you self-reliance, self-control, discipline, resilience. You get knocked down, you have to get back up. You're going to be getting yelled at. You feel pressure and all of these things. And you have to stay so focused on the task at hand. You can't listen to these outside voices or noises. You can't even listen to the, to the thoughts in your head if it doesn't suit your task at hand. 
And so we go in there and we teach girls wrestling, but we pair it with this leadership development, the championship life skills. And that means that we're going in to teach wrestling, but then because my background, I have a master's in sport and performance psychology, we put them through visualization and we teach them that if they can start to control their anxiety, I mean, that's the, the, the anxiety that they feel on the wrestling mat. That's the same that they're going to feel when they're taking a test or going for a job interview. And if they can start to master that through sport, that's fun and it's play and it teaches us how to get along and get along with other people. It teaches us when we have to fight and when we when we have to be able to shake hands like that's when we're able to give all of these other life skills that are not getting taught to girls. I mean, how many girls do you guys know that know how to adequately shake a hand, especially of a male? I mean, outside of the Middle East, we know that they don't do that. But I'm saying like, even here in the US, girls were like, am I supposed to shake their hand? And then they would go shake a hand and you would be like, that's not how you do a handshake. Like that's, we need to work on that. So it's everything down to the handshake. Yeah. And so are you just taking them out? This kind of makes me think of army training, right? You introduce deliberate discomfort when you train so that when you're doing something for real, you can you can perform and it won't be the first time and hopefully it won't be the hardest you've ever had it. Is a major thing taking them outside their comfort zone? Yes. We tell them that they have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And as soon as you get comfortable with that level of uncomfort then we're gonna raise the roof, right? So we are continuously putting in upticks. And the next thing you know, we were in Washington, D.C. And we were working in the different wards teaching wrestling and we were working with boys and girls. In Washington, D.C., the student athletes there, they tend to be higher obesity. They, like the kids come from broken homes. Uh, there's opioid epidemic, there's drug use, right? Like there's just a lack of stability. and. The first things that we had to teach them was how to do a forward roll. They didn't know how to do a forward roll because they'd never participated in any sort of physical activity. So that was like teaching them to touch their chin to their chest and then roll. We had to like that was 15 minutes and that was exhausting for them. Right. And they felt stupid. And so that was helping them to reframe the narrative and understand what their bodies were capable of. And you can take moments like that. And it seems like you're just teaching a four role. But then you start to put that over where it is that they came from. And you're like, no, you did a really good job. What you did was do something that your peer group was going to make fun of you about. You put on this wrestling singlet that was made of spandex that makes kids shy and self-conscious. And, and we just start to mm -hmm. blend it all in. Yeah, I uh, was never a fan of uh, singlet in my uh, sixth or seventh grade body. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, exactly. And so it's even helping kids being able to look in the mirror and being happy with who they see. Hey everybody, we want to take a second just to thank everyone who's listening and has been listening. If you're enjoying the show, go ahead and share it with some other people and help us get the word out. As you know by now, you can always find us on Twitter or Instagram at thankyounowwhat or by visiting our website at thankyounowwhat.com or you can even email us directly at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com. Ben and I both read each email we get and we really appreciate the engagement. If you really like what we're doing here and you'd like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. One, you can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website. Or you can become one of our beloved Patreon patrons by visiting patreon.com slash thank you now what. 
With Patreon, you can subscribe to automatically give a set amount per episode. The lowest tier is just a dollar. We're gonna be working on some extra bonus content for our patrons soon, so stay tuned. As always, please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans. You can also choose to give directly to the nonprofits we feature, which we appreciate as well. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. In addition to doing all the work, you're you're a CEO, right? Yeah. So you have to run the organization as well. Yes. Can you talk about uh, what some of those challenges are and, and how you spend your time running an organization versus doing the thing your organization does? Yeah. I mean, first off, I have the most rock star team. They are like the wind beneath my wings, truly. I have six people that work with me for Wrestle Like a Girl, and they all do various tasks and projects. But when I first started out, I was an athlete and I had a vision. And, and you know, I think one of the neat things about coming from special operations and from elite athletics, we tend to make decisions where more times than not, we're surrounding ourselves by people that happen to also be elite. And so when it came to getting Wrestle Like a Girl off the ground, I reached out to my girlfriend and I was like, hey, will you help me do this? And she said, yeah, sure. And I know that I'm a workhorse and I can do it. I just need help going the right direction. And her name's Amy Zernicholas and she's uh, originally from the island nation of Palau. So she's Palauan, matriarchal society. So she just thinks about the world differently right from the get. And she also worked for the UN. And so she has this really good global perspective in international business. So I've had to completely dive in. And I feel like some days I'm like taking my my skull off and I'm like taking my brain out and I'm just like injecting all this information. And it has been like an uphill sprint. Like the best way for me to describe it is like I'm running 10 miles an hour on a treadmill going on an incline of 10%. And I don't do everything perfectly, but we do so many things well that it's like, oh, now I understand how to do this better. And every time we like tighten things up and we start to get things more structured and everything just starts to make more sense. But I'll tell you the hardest thing that I had to do is fundraise. I actually thought that I was going to be killer at it. I was like, I can ask money from anybody. And then I walked into a dinner where I was supposed to be fundraising. And I was like, can I get another gin and tonic? I, I mean, I have no idea what happened. This confident, brazen woman, suddenly, all I, I had no idea what I was supposed to talk about. And all I could do was continuously sweat. So the way that we've just started to parse it out is, I take on the jobs that are the most anxiety inducing. So for me, that's fundraising. And I take on all of the jobs that need to be done that have to be done at a high level. And then I just make sure that my staff are, are diamonds and I'm a black tablecloth and I just let them shine and they do their own thing. I think uh, there's got to be something genetic about fundraising because it's kind of like how people treat sales too. Some people are naturals. Some people makes them sick to their stomach. Yeah, I've definitely clammed up more than a time or two. I've gotten so much better. I mean, so now our budget is, well, listen, it's COVID, so it's like 500K, right? But we normally are like punching around a million. And what, what was really hard was 
we were this darling organization because everyone loved us and they just wanted to support us. And then COVID hit. I'll tell you what, COVID was the best thing to ever happen to my personal and professional growth. All of wrestling came to a pause. All of the whole world came to a pause. And I did something that I had never allowed myself to do, which is not think about anything that was business, not think about anything that was wrestling. And so then that gave me the opportunity to say, okay, what are the things that I really need to start to tighten up and I need to understand? So marketing and media and going through and just tightening up finances and and all of these things that I didn't necessarily have to know through and through because I hired the people and they worked with me, but then COVID hit. And so then I just had an opportunity to learn. And I brought this new board chair on, her name's Marianne Bruce. She's been named top 25 women in banking. I actually brought her on very specifically because of her skill set and what she could offer. And her and I sat down every other day and just started going through the things that I needed to learn and understand more deeply about markets and the economy and fundraising and donor advised funds and all of these different elements of of money and that actually has been so important because here is like and this is me coming from as a woman as a ceo women are not often taught the language of money and it is the most spoken language across the globe. And women are often not sitting at board tables or on committees where the decisions about money are getting made. So they're not able to say where they want it to get allocated. And the most important thing that I ever did during COVID was start to learn that language of money so that I could start taking board seats. And I'm sitting down and I'm like, wait a minute, let's talk about this line item. And they're like, oh no, here comes Sally. <laughs> So you kind of, your strategy early on was to surround yourself with the people who could enable you to run a business. And I really like how you put it, the black tablecloth for the diamonds to shine. Yeah, Um, yeah. But you, I mean, I'm sure you all, you know, you also shine. You have a big personality. You're leading these people. You're very influential. You're a great speaker. So COVID forced you to learn all these other aspects about the business. Were you always constantly trying to learn the other nuances of running the business? Or did this really just hypercharge that? I wanted to know the other nuances of running the business, but I also was very cognizant to not micromanage. So I would sit down with one of my team members and just dive into some of these elements. But it wasn't like I was taking ownership, you know? I was like, what are you doing? Oh, that's really neat. With COVID, I was like, I really want to know this through and through, like if we're going to pivot to this virtual space, like how does the platform work? How do we code? How do we do the marketing? How do we like all of these different elements that seem simple and they can be if you just want to know it at a surface level. But if you want to dive in and roll up your sleeves and like truly take ownership, like that's what it gave me the opportunity to do. And even then, like, When I say that, it sounds like, ooh, I've had this incredible, amazing learning experience. I have, but also I haven't spent four years in college learning marketing and media like some of these other people, or if like you're in film and you've been doing it for 10 years, like the way that I learn best, and this is me understanding my brain and being an athlete, it's that I learn by watching people who are experts do their craft and I can pick it up so quickly. I'm a very quick learner. And so I, I, I often ask people like, oh, what is it that you do? And they'll give me an answer. And I'm like, are you an expert? 
And they're like, no. And then I'm like, okay. And I would just walk away because I knew I didn't want to learn from them. And if they didn't have the confidence to say they were the not the expert or that they were the expert, then I didn't want to learn from that either, you know? I've, I've since come to find that there's different ways that people communicate and there's so many things that you can learn from everybody. But that was just like me being my own protective self saying, oh, if you're not an expert, if you're not the best, and if you don't have the confidence, I didn't want to go that direction because I was so nervous I was going to absorb any of that like negative energy. Do you think there's a level of audacity that comes with that? And do you care? There is. I mean, I I think yet another lesson that we've learned, we have to be able to fail forward, right? If you fail and you fail forward, then that's a learning experience and you can do better next time. And so I've gotten very comfortable with putting myself out there in really brave and audacious ways so that I get the opportunity to fail because if I never even understand what that's like, I'm never going to improve. And I remember I went I went to my very first mega sporting event conference that was at the U.S. State Department in 2016. John Kerry was the guy that invited me to that one. And I remember standing at the threshold with my girlfriend and I'm looking at it and I am so nervous. And I look over at her and she looks over at me and she's like, you deserve to be here. And it's like, I needed that voice in my ear. Not even just in my, like she was yelling it at me, not yelling, but you know, there was some sternness. And we go and sit down and I'm sitting there and I'm surrounded by heads of state and world leaders and diplomats. And I'm just being perfect. And my my friend leans over and says, you need to get up and ask a question. I was like, newsflash, no questions, absorbing everything. I don't know if you know this, but I have no questions. And she was like, it doesn't matter what the question is, Sally. The people need to know that you're in this room. And I was like, oh, okay. So I go up and I ask this brilliantly scripted question that I had written down in my iPhone. And as soon as I like my mouth opens up and says, hi, I'm Sally with Wrestle Like a Girl. I mean, just the name of Wrestle Like a Girl, like that made everyone's head turn. And I was like, oh, there's people staring at me. And so I managed to stutter out my question. I remember being incredibly nervous. The the question got answered, but what was more important was that she was right. After that, we went on a break. There was a session. People came up, and I was just handing out my business cards. I got three board members from that one first meeting. Amazing. You know what's awesome? You can be anywhere in the world. Wrestlers always find each other, and we always aggressively touch each other. Like, that's our language. So I ended up... David Grevenberg, he's the CEO of the Commonwealth Games Federation, the second most powerful games in the world. And he came up to me and grabbed me by my elbow and he was like, I wrestled too. And I was like, I could tell from your cauliflower ear. The next thing you know, like David and I are old chums. We're hanging out and we're laughing and joking and talking. And we're just, everything is about wrestling and women's wrestling and gender equality. And how do we give voice and amplify? I'm totally in my element. The next thing you know, someone else that is a high level diplomat comes over and was like, I wrestled too. And the next thing you know, there is five people standing around that have all wrestled. And what's amazing about it is that if, if I didn't have wrestled, I would have never been in that space. And these were very important people that I was able to go and, and have these incredible, 
incredibly cool relationships with because we had a commonality of sport. And that was the defining thing that brought us together. And if you never spoke up, you wouldn't have started. You got to ask questions. Yeah, you got to put yourself out there. Yep. You said that wrestlers know wrestlers. So I want to touch on a current event. Do you want to spend time talking about Naveed? Yeah, yeah. So that that was a very heartfelt endeavor that I decided to just jump into with both feet. Yeah, just a baseline for us for people who haven't read up on it. You're probably already going to do that. but <laughs> <laughs> At the global level, I work with gender equality, wrestling, and human rights. And because of that, I have very strong relationships with Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, World Players Union, the Sports and Rights Alliance, right? Like, so there's these mega players that work in this space. And I got a notice that there was this wrestler named Navid Afkari, and he had been sentenced to double execution by the Iranian regime. And as soon as I got this information, I thought, well, first off, we need to fact check this. So I called a friend who got our friends from the Center for Human Rights in Iran to just do a deep dive into his case and figure out what is the truth? Because what they said was that he had made derogatory comments against the Supreme Leader. That was death sentence number one. And death sentence number two was that he killed a, a plainclothes man, a security guy. So I said, hey, can you guys go and fact check and make sure what actually happened? Because they're notorious for their miscarriages of justice. In the meantime, I reach out to some of my colleagues that work in wrestling and sport diplomacy, specifically with Iran. And I asked these guys like, hey, are you guys already on this? And their response back was, oh, we're not touching it. The Iranian regime, they do not forgive and they do not forget. Essentially, their hands were off. And I said, okay, so if this were me and if I would have been sentenced to double execution, I would have really wished someone would have spoken up for me. Like, hey, so I decided to make a video and I coordinated with Iran TV where I just made a plea to the Supreme Leader and asked for his life to be spared. And and I was the first one to do it, which is why it was so intense. And I was a woman and I am the CEO of Wrestle Like a Girl. So all of these factors that are now going into Iran TV that is outside of the country, but you know that they have social media. So everyone saw it inside the country too. And it turned into this really interesting conversation where from that point, I convened a meeting with all of my global leaders and I said, we we have to do something about this. And serendipitously, we got the report back from the Center for Human Rights in Iran where they had confirmed he did not kill that person and it had been confirmed that he was at the protest, but there was no chance, like he didn't mean anything derogatorily to kill the Supreme Leader. Essentially what they wanted to do was in 2018, there was a protest, he was involved in it. He got arrested, he and his two brothers got rolled up. In 2019, there was another protest. Well, by this time, the Iranian regime, they don't want any protests. Oh, we have this wrestler, and in Iran, wrestling is this lion-hearted sport. If we kill this guy, if we sentence him to double executions, then by Sharia law, you can't you can't appeal. And so he was immediately sentenced to death. What they wanted to do was make 
an example out of him. If you protest against us, we don't care if you are a Greco-Roman national champion wrestler, we will kill you. And there was just no way that I was gonna be able to support that, like athlete persecution. So I just started banging the drums and we got the IOC president, Thomas Bach, to send a personal letter to the Supreme Leader. And we got 22 NGO, non-governmental organizations to send letters of support and solidarity. And we were able to get 420 high level, high visibility athletes to make videos and appeals. And we just started bombarding them through the media. And it is with such a heavy heart that, I mean, I'll actually share that we were working with the families to, there was a, the Swiss government set up this humanitarian fund. And so we worked with the families to come up with a reparation where we raised money and we were going to, we made the suggestion that if they agreed to it, we would open a wrestling school in Iran in honor of the slain man. And that would have made the retribution of, of his, of killing him. I don't know how you would say it in Sharia law. Well, when both of the families were at the airport to discuss this, they got notified that Navid had been executed. So the big question that is being asked now is they don't think he actually got executed. They think he got tortured to death. And so we're working and, and looking and saying, how do we continue to seek justice for Navid? But then on a larger scale, the athlete's voice is incredibly critical and crucial. And if they can recognize that they can use their influence and their voice and the platform and their followers and, and have a larger conversation about human rights, sports, fairness, equality, like there's an opportunity, there's a moment for that. So you still have work to do. Yeah, there is a lot of work to do. So we have, in 2021, there's gonna be the Olympics at Tokyo and Human Rights Watch, uh, one of my advisory council members, Minky Worden, she's the director of global initiatives. She and her team just put out this report called from the Japanese athletes, they hit me so many times, I lost count. That, that documented all of this incredible athlete abuse that's been happening in Japan. And then 2022, there's another Olympics coming up in China. Okay, Uyghurs, hello, we got that we can talk about. I mean, that's the beginning of where we go. But then you can actually start like looking at the athletes within the Olympic movement in China, where it's like, wow, they're not being treated well at all. Like we can say that if you were an American and this was the American system, that would be athlete abuse. That would be safe sport violations. And then the follow on is that 2022 in the fall, Qatar has the Soccer World Cup. I think it's something like 62 People have died building the stadiums where they're gonna be playing this World Cup. Many of them are slave labor from Indonesia. There's also been documentation and information coming that North Korea is sending workers to go and build these stadiums and the, the workers don't get paid. It goes right back to North Korea. So like there is this human trafficking chain going on. And so this is where I look at it and say, we have to have athletes that care about these things on a larger scale because this isn't how we wanna do sport by marginalizing others and killing them and, and watching them suffer. Like sports better than that and we need to use it to be a platform for good and if our athletes don't use our voice and stick up for that then we're continuing the old narrative do you think it's the responsibility of people who have this voice and this opportunity to do something like that with it i think everyone has everyone should do something with their life that impacts others in a very good and decent way however they want to do that 
And I just think athletes, they have an opportunity and they have a platform. And, and so part of the work of what is it we're doing, we're, we started a campaign. It's called Athletes for Justice, inspired by Navid Afkari. And we are taking athletes and we're putting them through a course and a curriculum of how to be an advocate, how to use your voice, how do you navigate in this world? How do you fact check sources, things like that. And, you know, we're at least going to give them the tools that if they see something, they can say something. If they want to speak up, they're empowered. And I've just come to realize that the voice of the affected athlete is one of the most powerful voices that you can have. Did you ever think that you would be tackling issues like this back when you were just training to win? No. You know, I knew that I had the capacity to step into some of the dark places that people often don't want to go to. And I've always had a, a passion for women and girls and marginalized people in society and, and to being a voice for the voiceless. I mean, I just always found such honor and strength in that. But I think what I found the most compelling was that the amount of people that don't want to do it. And it's that old notion, you know, it's the Travis Mannion saying, if not me, then who? And if it's not me, if it wasn't going to be me for Naveed, no one would have been his voice. And you just, you start to make these decisions about, and I had to do this. Okay, if I leverage my voice for Naveed Afkari, this Iranian Greco-Roman wrestler that's been sentenced to double death, I'm going to lose sponsors. I'm going to lose speaking opportunities. I'm potentially going to be put in harm's way, right? Like there's, there was some decisions that I had to make. And at the end of the day, it kept coming back to, but I'm sitting here in my office that is warm and I'm safe and I have a belly full of pizza and who knows what's happening to him. And I just, you, you know, you make these decisions and you make, you just go forward boldly. Did you ever meet him? No, I didn't. I got to exchange some videos and some audio recordings. And I had some communique with his mother and he has two brothers that are serving. So he got rolled up and then they came back and arrested two of his four brothers. So there was five boys total plus one girl. So there were six family members. Two of the brothers that got rolled up with him got sentenced to 74 lashes each and 80 years in prison total. and. If you guys ever, just like it's Halloween, so maybe this could be a terrible horror story idea, but you can do a Google on Evan prison in, in Iran and it is considered the worst prison in the world. And you're like, what? What could that be like? Yeah, it's the worst prison in the world. So I, I've been having conversations with friends and diplomats and people that I know in high places to say, how do we get his brothers out? Because they're innocent also. Like that whole family was a pawn for the regime to try and get them to stop protesting. And I guess the, the bit of good news that I can, I can look back on through all of that is that we made him this international wrestling figure, this celebrity that when it got announced that he had been executed, the world was pissed. And there is so much happening now in Iran. You can look at it and, and the people are ready for change. Uh, some people are ready for change, you know, and they're they're taking to the streets and they're participating in protests and civil unrest. And they're working through it how they can under the system that they've been given. Hmm. Ben is like a seasoned documentary filmmaker. And I know that is he's just thinking of all of this. 
I mean, this is just such a great story. I mean, everything we're hearing, using sport as a path to empowerment and then combining it, I'm sure, with some of the communi communication skills you, you learned in the service to then go from empowerment to then being a role model and a change agent on this next level. I mean, going beyond sport, but through, but using sport, it's just awesome. I, I don't have any questions, just that's my comment. It's really inspiring to hear your story. Yeah, we have one question that we do ask everybody is, who are you today if you never joined the army? Or who are you today if you never served? You know, if it wasn't for the army, my first, the first time in 2009, I was, I was sitting there thinking, okay, I'm second in the nation. What do I do? Like, should I apply to become a CEO of a company or should I be working at 7-Eleven? I didn't know. I didn't know who I was. The army taught me just how badass I could be by teaching me all of these other skills. And, you know, one of the other things that I just love about the army was that on paper, men and women got treated the same. And I loved that I could succeed by doing well. And so if it wasn't for the army, I think, who knows? I have no idea what I would have been doing because that completely changed the whole trajectory of my life. Like I wouldn't have wrestle like a girl. I know that I wouldn't have a global perspective. I know that I wouldn't have any capacity of, of what I was capable of. I mean, wrestling, it teaches you to own your space, your voice, your body, but then the, the military is what puts all that oomph behind it so that you believe it. I mean, I get asked quite often, what is the most important thing a woman can wear? And I, A, think it's a ridiculous question, but my response is confidence. Confidence is the most important thing that a woman can wear. And that is what got me onto the flight line. So I'll, do I have enough time for just one last story? Yeah, of course. Okay. Always. Okay. Yeah. So I'm not in the military anymore, so I can't get kicked out for these things. So at one point I had to fly around regional command East and I was doing that white paper on the female engagement teams. And because of the rank on my chest, some of the some of the female soldiers wouldn't listen to me and they wouldn't give me respect. And I thought it was bizarre, but I also recognized why it happened. And I also knew that I was a bit of a renegade. So I went back to our compound and I went online and I ordered civilian clothes from North Face because at that time, 2000, um, what, 12, 13, Obama was doing a troop drawdown and they were backfilling with contractors. And so I dressed up like a contractor and I was like, okay, I'm gonna get these women to talk to me because they're gonna think I'm someone else who I don't know. But I walked around and I went to the flight line and I had to go get on a helicopter in all of my civilian North Face clothes. And I was like, I need on this bird. And they're like, you got it. And then I heard them whispering, we think she's CIA. And I was like, who do they think? I was like, oh gosh, that's me. And then I was like, let the games begin. I would fly up and down RCE so that I could get all of this information. And suddenly, instead of like these battles royale of trying to get information, it was like they were an open book. Oh, here's what we like. Here's what we don't like. Here's what we need training on. Like I ended up sending this paper up to my commander that sent it up to wherever it went to. And it actually changed some of the direction going forward of, of how we train women. But the funny thing is, is that if I wouldn't have learned that incredible steely confidence from the military, there's no way that I would be near the same person that I am right now. Well, we enjoy the person you are now. We're going to keep tabs. We're going to reach out and hopefully we're going to follow up. 
Sally Roberts, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Sally molding the next generation of female warriors and leaders while tackling issues that are much bigger than sport. Please support our beloved nonprofits, Coast to Coast Foundation, Small Steps in Speech, Service to School, Elite Meet, and especially Wrestle Like a Girl. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What. Thank you.